If you brought a Bible this morning with you, would you go to uh, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, Romans chapter 8, and Romans chapter 9. No kidding. We're just going to um, touch briefly on what we looked at last week. I want to I catch up if you didn't have the opportunity to be with us last weekend. And, and here's something I really want you to drink in. Romans 8.28 is theologically rich. Look at it on the screen. God, he causes all things to work together for good. To those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's a hard verse to read when things aren't going so good in your life. And you might be reading it right now and, and be in that place where you're thinking, it might be true for other people, but it's not true for me. Scripture says he causes all things to work together for a reason. What's the reason? The sweet things and the bitter things in your life are all working together for a reason. In other words, God brings things into your path which will surpass your ability to grasp in the moment. Can't make sense of it. And in those moments, the question that Scripture asks of you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus, is how are you going to respond to that? What are you going to do in the midst of that? Will you make room for the work of God? Because we're told it's God who causes all these things to work together. So I'm asking this question this morning that I asked last week of you, is there space in your life for God to interrupt? Because when he brings monumental challenges your way, he brings along with that monumental questions. And God doesn't expect you necessarily to know all the answers to those questions, but humanly, we want to ask the questions like, what in the world is going on? Did I do something wrong? Did I make a mistake somehow? Now, many of us won't verbalize that. We'll keep it to ourselves. We might trust the questions to a few friends. Occasionally, some of those leak out. But especially when we come up against Romans 8.28. Look at it again. Look at the verse. Drink it in. God causes all things to work together for good. There's difficulty in finding balance within that declaration within Scripture. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Can I remind you what we landed on last week? That God's calling upon your life. He calls you. His calling is to conform you to look like Jesus. In other words, there's a purpose. There's a reason for these things that come into your life is that you would look more like Christ. All things work together for good because all things work to make you look more like Jesus. All things, the sweet things and the bitter things, God's using those to shape you. It means whatever you're going through right now, whatever you might go through in 2020, we don't know what's ahead of us. It's not by accident. God causes those things. And if you're a believer in Jesus, he says, in the midst of that, I got you. I'm there for you. I'm the one who called you, and I called you according to purpose. So that means you weren't just saved for salvation's sake alone. You were saved for something more, more than just your salvation. 
Well, this morning I want to work out with you the something more. And here's how we understand the something more. Now, we just touched on Romans 8. Let's just touch on Romans 9. And then we're going to dive into the Christmas story. Here's what Romans 9 says in verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, so he's talking about believers here, even us whom he also called. Paul goes out of his way in the book of Romans to make it very, very clear that all of humanity is under the wrath of God. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So every person who's ever been born falls under the wrath of God, but God is not content to leave us there. Romans 9 says he goes beyond that wrath and he holds that wrath at bay because God exercised great patience towards us. And in the midst of exercising great patience, although at any time he could exercise the wrath, he holds it back. He keeps the wrath at bay. So he bore with great patience those who were the objects of his wrath in order to make them objects of his mercy. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you are an object of the mercy of God. Say amen if you agree with that. It's true of you. You're an object of his mercy. You may have been an object of his wrath, but you believe in Jesus. So Jesus dies for your sins. He makes you just righteous before God. And therefore, you're an object of God's mercy. Even though he could show wrath, he bore great patience toward us. So his desire is that the objects of his mercy, that's you, New Hope, that you would be set apart in order to reflect his glory. That's what it says in verse 23. Chapter 9, verse 23. Look at it really close. To make known the riches of of his glory upon you, upon me, the vessels of his mercy. So watch the flow of this because you're gonna get to see it in the Christmas story this morning. Catch this on the screen. Objects of wrath became objects of his mercy in order to, for the purpose of becoming objects of his glory. Now to demonstrate this very, very real principle We're going to translate it over to the Christmas story, to Joseph's life. Last week, we looked briefly at Mary. We're going to come back to Mary and Joseph on Christmas Eve and put the two together. But this morning, it's just about Joseph. We saw last week that Mary was an object of his mercy, and she became an object of his glory. She heard the announcement from the angel. You, Mary, have found favor with God. Well, the reality is that finding favor with God doesn't always mean that you get the assignment that you want. You can be chosen. You can be in the place where you have found favor with God, but not necessarily get the assignment that you wanted. But God says in the background, I'm working through all of that. I'm working to make you an object of my glory because you are an object of my mercy. So let's dive into the Christmas story. You know this. Charlie Brown read it to you years ago. Right? Let's, let's go to this. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. It says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, and he's talking about the Roman world there, all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
There's a lot of debate about Quirinius and the time that he ruled and the region of Syria that he was in and how does it fit into the timeline of Jesus' birth. You can do a lot of research yourself on it. If you, if you want a great article, go to Bible.org and just put in Quirinius, Bible.org, and it will tell you about Quirinius and how he fits into this story. You don't need to do that now. I know you got your phones with you. You could do it in the service. Just hold off. Here's what you need to know. Jews despise the census. They don't want anything to do with it. It's bad enough to be under the heel of Rome. And the only reason Rome wants the census is so they can increase the taxes. So they don't want anything to do with it, but they have to. They're compelled to do it. And so Dr. Luke, who is a brilliant historian, he records with great intricacy all the details of that period of time. And he introduces us in verse 4 to Joseph. Look with me at this one, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. In the first century, lifespan of the average male was 35 to 40 years of age. That's if you made it past 10 years. So many, many children died in infancy, in birth, through disease. It was difficult to make it to 10 years of age. For those who made it past 10, the lifespan increased a little bit. You might make it to 50 or 55, but you were really considered old at that point. Joseph's probably 19 or 20 here, and he's ready to get married. He's been apprenticed. He's a craftsman, according to the word that you're going to see that's used next. I'll show you that in just a moment. So Joseph is a construction worker. He's a construction worker in both wood and probably masonry. We know that because of the word that's used here in Matthew 13. You see this on the screen. Verse 54, speaking of Jesus, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the tecton's son, the carpenter's son? It's the first of four words that's in your notes this morning, tecton. And Tecton is describing what we just talked about, a craftsman in wood, or perhaps in stone. That's his career. That's his profession. That's what he's chosen to do with his hands. He's going to make a living for his family. This is the guy who wants to be married. He's engaged to be married. And he's engaging himself in a really respected trade. He's been apprenticed, and now it's time to step out on his own. But what about his personal character? What's that like? Well, we get insight from Matthew and from Luke. He's called a just man or a righteous man. That's the next Greek word in your notes, dikaios. This is talking about Joseph's character here in that definition. He's innocent. He's holy in his actions, in his behavior, in his thought life. He's a righteous guy. And he's traveling, according to Luke's version, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Luke 2, verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. Now, immediately, your mind thinks fiancé, but betrothed meant a whole lot more than what it means today to be engaged to someone. First of all, there's some type of a party that's taken place. There's an engagement party that's held. The parents, at their expense, host a banquet, and in the midst of the banquet, a gift is presented. That's the next Greek word that's in your notes, this particular word, nestuo. And it's talking about a souvenir. Now, many times when you think of souvenir, you think you went on vacation and you brought some type of a, a reminder home. Well, that's actually where the thought of the wedding gift comes from. Somewhere in the midst of the banquet, while the dad was holding the party, Joseph pulls out the nestuo, the souvenir, if you will. 
And it's a pledge to marry Mary, to belong to her. So he presents her with this gift. It's a symbol of the covenant relationship they're going to enter into. So as the party progresses, the priest or a rabbi arrives on the scene and a cup of wine is poured. And pronouncing over the cup of wine as the two, the bride and the groom, lift the cup, he pronounces the marriage covenant has been entered into. And as a result of that, the father uh, drafts a, a legal document. Uh, it's known as the ketubah. That's the next word, the final word that's in your notes in the Greek language, or the, this one's Hebrew, actually. It's a legal document, and it's outlining all the terms of the marriage covenant. And in case of a divorce, it outlines that as well. Now, here's where things get different than our marriage arrangements. After the marriage covenant is established, the groom leaves his bride because they're not officially married yet. And he leaves her for 12 months. It's a one-year waiting period. And there's a purpose in this waiting period. So at this point, the names are recorded and registered at the local synagogue, and it's made public to everyone. There's a, a commitment to marriage, and everyone in town begins to greet you, and they're in the midst of the 12-month waiting period, anticipating the actual waiting day, wedding day. Well, what's the purpose of the one-year waiting period? It's to prove that the bride is pure, that she's a virgin. Because if there's a baby involved, well, it's going to be revealed in the first 12 months. So on the big day, the groom arrives and he's ready to escort his bride back to the home that he's prepared. Because during that 12-month time, no problem for a carpenter, he's been out building a house. That was customary for the groom to be setting up a household. So he's anticipating what's coming. Now, Joseph is, from my view, the guy you want to build your house or maybe your dining table. Because this guy is dependable. He's rock solid. He's from a great family. He's got a reputation. He's honest. And now he's got a family to provide for, so he's responsible. Well, what's his mindset during this 12-month period of time? Well, I'm sorry to break the news to you ladies, but I can tell you he's not thinking about the color of the bridesmaid dresses. Right? And he's not thinking about the invitations. He's thinking about his bride, and he's thinking about his wedding night, and he has all the expectations of a young groom. And life is good. Everything is going exactly as planned. Until they don't. What happens when God interrupts your world? What happens when God's plans are different than your plans? And you run headfirst into Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Now, earlier, what we were saying is that God calls us for more than salvation. He calls us for salvation. He expects us to respond to what Jesus has offered, but he calls us to conform us so that we will look like Jesus in how we do business, in how we walk, in how we talk, how we act at the parties, in all these categories. The question that comes from this passage is, how will I respond? Will I make room for the work of God in my life when things aren't going the way that I thought they were going to go? Now we get Matthew's version. We've looked at Romans 8, we looked at Romans 9, we looked at Luke 2. Now Matthew has a new view on this. 
He looks at the emotion that's going on behind the scenes. Matthew chapter one. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Hey, you talk about a verse that needs unpacking. That's a huge one. Because they've experienced zero sexual contact. Mary and Joseph have not engaged in that. So to be really, really clear, the Bible is really, really clear for crucial reasons which relate to you this morning. The very reason that you can stand here and sing praise songs to Jesus is based in verse 18. Verse 18 says, before they came together, she's found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. See, if that's not true, you have no reason to believe that your sins are forgiven this morning. Because he wouldn't be the son of God. If that's not true... You have no reason to believe you're not still under the wrath of God. That you're still an object of wrath. But the Bible is explicit for this magnitude of this issue. It's huge here. So Matthew goes out of his way to state it in verse 18. She's found to be with child. Now stop right there. Found means people discovered. The town, Joseph, they found out. They found that she's with child. The pregnancy is obvious. Now, just zoom out with me for just a moment. Make no mistake, this is God. This is God's activity. And God has just brought a monumental challenge into the life of a person who's living righteously. He's just. Scripture's already called him that. He's like you. He's doing things he thinks is pleasing to God. But it seems like his world is collapsing. But the reality is that God's at work and he's allowing Joseph to step into this category of being an object of God's glory. But in the midst of the story, we're still in the 12-month waiting period. There's still a year to unfold here and Mary's found pregnant. And so logically, he assumes that she's unfaithful. She's got a boyfriend someplace. I didn't know about her and she's been unfaithful and this is serious in the extreme because in the first century, this results in a death sentence. Sexual purity was the highest standard God set for his people that they would abstain outside of marriage and that there would be fidelity within marriage and for Mary's part, from her view, her status is the very reason she questions the angel when he shows up and says, you're gonna have a baby, she says, How can this be? I'm a virgin. She understands that she's a virgin. She knows that that has to be the case. And it's the evidence of the terms of the marriage contract. But God's word is really clear. She's going to be pregnant. But this next part is what's crucial in verse 18. By the Holy Spirit. Now, you're probably like me. Maybe over the years you've wondered, how does that actually work? How... Can you explain the blending of the divine with humanity? Well, God chose not to tell us. And maybe you found some answer for it, but I've scoured the Bible and I can't find an answer for it. He doesn't choose to show us. And I accept the fact that this is what God says it is. And I understand also that even if God explained it, I probably couldn't understand it. I can barely figure out my smartphone. So I go with that. Okay, God said it, it's true. We accept these things by faith. Here's a throwback to Romans for you. Remember the definition of faith if you were here during the Romans study? Look with me on the screen. Faith 
is my response to what God has revealed. Faith is my response to what God has revealed. God reveals it. How am I going to respond? What's my response to what God has revealed? Well, here's what you and I can understand. We can understand Galatians 4.4. It says this, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Do you notice what's missing there? There's no human father in that. Born of a woman, but yet there's a son born. How is that possible? Jesus had to have one human parent or he could not have been human, but he had to be of divine origin or he wouldn't be the perfect payment for sin. So he's fully human. He, he knows your weaknesses and he didn't, by the way, become human so he could know your weaknesses. He's God. He knows everything, but so that you would know that he knows. You tracking with me on that? Right? He knows everything. He didn't have to become human in order to know your weakness, but so that you would know that he knows. He became one of us, but fully God, so that he could alone pay for all of the penalty so that you wouldn't be under the wrath of God. The problem is, Joseph didn't know any of this. He doesn't know these details. He doesn't know that God's working to make him an object of his glory. So go back to the story. Verse 19 says this, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned, planning, was planned to send her away secretly. Do you notice as you read that, maybe it's gone past you before as you've read it, that's very subtle, that he's already considered her husband and Joseph her husband because they took the marriage vows that seriously, even though they're still engaged. By our terms, they're fiancés. So he plans to send her away secretly, and you want to yell, Joseph, read Luke chapter 1. Problem is, it hasn't been written yet. That's just like your story. Your story hasn't been written yet, New Hope. You're still in the midst of it. Joseph is still in the midst of this trauma. He doesn't understand what's going on. What do we know about Joseph so far? Well, we know that he's a woodworker, and I know a few woodworkers, and I know they're process-oriented. They take things very introspectively. They're strategic in their thinking, and they process things deeply, which means they're not a pushover. I also look at Joseph, and I understand this guy's an adventurer. He knows the word of God. He's also a man of action. Throughout the story, he does what needs to be done. He's the guy that can get it done, which means he's a fixer. And he's a fixer because he's a guy, right? It goes hand in hand. Guys are fixers, and they want to fix things. The problem is he can't fix this. There's nothing he can do to fix this mess from his view. All his life, he's been careful to observe the Old Testament law. He's living what scripture calls a just life. He can't make sense of this. There's been a violation in his mind. She's not been faithful. So I've got to send her away. She's no longer eligible to marry him. At the minimum, she deserves a divorce, bill of divorce. While it's not written in the story, we also know something about Joseph's heart. We know his heart is crushing in this moment because this is the woman he loves. They've bonded together emotionally. 
And so he's crushed. He genuinely loves Mary. You can see it in his actions, the ways that he tries to protect her. He's not going to allow her to be publicly humiliated, even though he's been shamed. So he's got a dilemma. To be just under Mosaic law, it demands action. Joseph cannot marry Mary. If he goes through with the marriage, he's admitting that he's involved. He's essentially saying to the town, yeah, I did it. I'm guilty. it's, It's mine. If he goes through the marriage, he's inviting scorn. So he's got a new plan. How can he leave his justness and his compassion intact? Well, verse 19 answers that. Not wanting to disgrace her, he plans to send her away secretly. The problem is people in the community know you. You've been trying to build a reputation. You you want a list of clients for your woodworking business. You need that reputation in this community. So it's expected. He will divorce her. It'll be private. Maybe Elizabeth will let her back into her house. Check what's going on here linked with what we talked about last week. His future hinges on this decision. His professional life, his social life, his spiritual position in the community, it all hinges on reputation. And without your reputation, you can't get work. And so Joseph's world is spiraling out of control because God is causing something to work together for good. And he's working in the background, drawing him into the mystery of the incarnation. So the backstory is God's at work. Joseph is the object of God's glory, but Joseph doesn't understand that. He has no idea what's unfolding in heaven. So we go to the next verse, verse 20. But as he considered these things, by the way, there's a reminder for you that God knows what you're thinking, by the way. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So in the blink of an eye, God dispatches one of his warriors from the throne room. This one who will carry the message, step through the fabric of time, and still effervescing with the Shekinah glory of God radiating around him, he steps into Joseph's reality. Fast forward with me 30 years in time. From the baby Jesus to the man Jesus. God the son becomes Jesus the man. And Jesus the man, as God the son, asks this question you see on the screen. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? See, that's exactly the question that Joseph is asking. That's what's on his mind. He's not mine. Whose son is he? Who does he belong to? That's the same question the angel has to address. Watch it unfold as Joseph would understand this. Verse 20, put it up on the screen, just break it down. Joseph, son of David. Why does the angel have to start that way? He has to remind him of who he is. He's in the line of King David. Jesus is born of royal lineage On earth, he descends from the king of Israel. So he has to remind him because why? He's in the midst of a crisis. I find that God has to do that for you and I. 
He has to remind us when we're in times of trauma of whose we are, who you belong to, who it is that gave his life for you. So the angel starts there. Joseph, son of David, next part, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Not only no divorce, Joseph, don't be afraid to take her as yours. The child will be legally Joseph's son. Joseph will act as the foster father. He's not the biological father, but a foster father here on earth. Now, how significant are the pieces that you learned last week in this moment? When Mary was given information about the child, what was revealed to her, look with me on the screen, Luke 1.32, he will be great. This is what the angel told Mary. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So when the angel says to Joseph, do not fear, he's saying to him, this is the literal Greek language, do not shrink back. Don't shrink back from something that you are supposed to do, Joseph. Here's the problem when you and I hit trauma. You and I today have the same reaction that Joseph has here. Many people think one thing when hard times come. If I could just change this. If I could just reverse the circumstances. God's telling Joseph, no Joseph, meet it head on. Meet it head on, Joseph. This is confirming for you why God intervenes. See, he knows that Joseph is processing. He knows that he's already arrived at a conclusion. And so God has to intervene in this moment. Now, according to Luke's story, Mary has already been told Jesus' name, but she's not told the why. She knows the name Jesus, but she doesn't know why he's to be called Jesus. See, each of them received a piece to the puzzle. But neither one of them had the complete picture. They needed each other to understand the whole. So verse 21 is the answer. It positions you to understand the purpose. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to purpose. What's the purpose? Verse 21. She will bear a son and you, Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. See, destiny is in his very name. Let me expand on that for you. There's a purpose for everything that's happening in Joseph's life. There's a purpose for everything that's happening in your life. Even though Joseph cannot understand it, God is saying, trust me, Joseph. You don't have the full picture. Just trust me. Let me help you flesh this out. Just zoom out with me for just a moment. We know this about angels. Angels only do what God tells them to do. They're called messengers for a reason. They're expected to repeat exactly what God tells them to deliver. They're messenger angels, and they stand in the presence of God. That's what Gabriel announced in Luke. Behold, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Do you think that Gabriel's going to vary the story at all? No. He's going to say exactly what God wants him to do. So the he in the midst of verse 21 is emphatic in the Greek language. It reads like this. He and no other will save his people from their sins. He and no other. So the Greek is quite literal in a really commanding way. Stay with me if you're losing me on this. He says to Joseph, you are to name him Yeshua. 
And it's a really unusual construction in the Greek language here, but it gives a really strong commanding force. His name is to be Yeshua. Yeshua means Yahweh is salvation. You are to name him Yeshua, for he will save his people. Don't miss the point. Why did the angel emphasize that to Joseph? He's going to be the dad. Why tell the dad that? You, Joseph, have the responsibility. As the Hebrew dad, you're going to name him this name, Joseph. And don't miss the point, church. The reason for it is grace. Grace strikes such an early note from the very beginning in Jesus' life. He's given a name which embodies grace. He's going to be called Yeshua. See, the reason I tell you that is the expectation is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to deliver the people from an unruly nation. So in the first century, they believe they're going to be delivered from Rome. Or when the Yeshua, when the Messiah comes, he's, he's going to be the one who will call people back to God. But there was no expectation that the Messiah was going to give his life for the sins of the people. There was no expectation of that. So Matthew has to hit the pause button. Right there is what he does. He hits it and he gives commentary in verse 22. He says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us or more literally in the Hebrew language. With us, God. With us, God. You just sang that. Emmanuel, God with us. You just declared what the angel declared. Now, Matthew speaks of these things not as being spoken of by the prophet, but he says, the prophet spoke the things as said by the Lord. The Lord said these. In other words, God's saying, make room because I'm coming and I'm gonna do these things. I'm up to something you don't understand. So in the midst of it, Matthew has to say that the prophet reminds us the virgin's gonna be with child. A pregnant virgin? What? You think it's magnificent when the angels show up on the hillside and, and say to the shepherds, this will be a sign to you, you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laying in a manger? Well, that's a sign, but that's not a sign like a pregnant virgin. Like, what? Who ever heard of such a thing? It's stunning. And equally stunning right alongside it is this name, Emmanuel. He will be called Emmanuel, for he will save his people. See, there it is, Jesus with you, right up to the end causing all things to work together for good. God with you, and I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. So you and I are left with the question, well, how do I respond to these difficult things? What do I do? Will I make room? Well, we can only look at Joseph for an example. Let's see how the story finishes. It finishes with verse 24. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, which is totally against culture, Verse 25, but knew her not. In other words, he kept her as a virgin until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Yeshua. In my book, I don't know about you, but Joseph gets the gold star for discipline, right? 
He's married. She's legally his. But he keeps her a virgin. And once again, he has to alter his plans because of God's purposes. See, I don't need to know one more thing about Joseph than to know that right there. I know that he's totally sold out at this point. He's all in and he owns it. See, it is inconceivable that God would trust the son of God to a family where the father was not totally committed. And this is not commitment as long as it's convenient. This is all in. This is a father who really owns it. We know that he takes the infant Jesus to the temple for dedication. We know, and you're going to see it on Tuesday, that they have to run to Egypt to avoid the slaughter of the innocents by King Herod. We know that he takes Jesus to the temple when he's 12. He's there. He's involved as a dad. How in the world is a carpenter able to do all of this? Well, he trusts God's word. He's not just a carpenter. He's God's carpenter in the workplace And he allows his understanding of God's purposes to overcome all of his natural desires. What are your natural desires in these moments? Run. I don't want to be part of this. God says, no, let me explain to you. There's purpose in this, Joseph. His natural instincts is to take his wife. But he says, no, I'll keep her a virgin. He's that committed to what he knows to be true because he's chosen not only to be an object of God's mercy, but to be an object of God's glory. Even when it means not getting the assignment that you want, you still have the responsibility before God. So Matthew ends this with really crucial information. He says Joseph took his wife. That means he publicly accepted Mary. And he's violating all custom, takes her into his home, and then waits for the gossip And there will be gossip. He's in a small town. Anybody here grow up in a small town? They gossip there? They gossip in big towns. Why wouldn't they gossip in small towns? He's going to be the object of scorn, but God's purposes are at work. Joseph has been chosen to be an object of his glory, to take on the responsibilities to fulfill God's plan. So I'm asking you this morning, Would you allow God to interrupt your life so that he can put himself on display? I recognize that for some of you today might be your first time in church or maybe it's your first time in church in a really long time or maybe you've been in church for 50 years but you find yourself thinking there's there's no way God would ever make me an object of his glory. That's just not gonna happen. I'm not qualified I'm here to remind you this morning that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you belong to Jesus, you are qualified. And he will take you from being an object of his mercy to being an object of his glory. He wants to work through your life. We're the ones that hold back many times. But if you're new to church, maybe this is the first time you're hearing information like this. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to plead with you. Deal with this first most significant issue. This morning, become an object of his mercy. God wants to forgive you of your sin. He wants to do that. It's his desire that we would know that we don't have to carry around a sin burden. I don't care what you did yesterday. I don't care what you did a week ago. God says very clearly, it's not the magnitude of your sin, it's the magnitude of the Savior. 
He can forgive anything that you've done. So I'm pleading with you right now, be an object of his mercy. We'll come back to that. Deal with that first most significant issue. Allow Jesus to be the savior of your life. But hear this before we move on. God makes no distinction whatsoever based on your race, your background, your nationality, your intelligence, your social status, or even your morality. You may be the greatest sinner who's ever walked the face of the earth, but I can point you to the greatest savior who can trump your sin every time. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that separates you from God in a relationship with him is whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ and you've still got sin on you if you don't believe. I promise you, under the authority of God's word, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is your Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what scripture says. God promises us that. And based on that action, if you believe, you're transferred over to be an object of his mercy and nothing can separate you from the love of God at that point. You're there for forever, not just for life. I could say for life, but I mean for eternal life. You're there forever. Here's what I want you to hear if you're a believer though. God is the one who causes these things. God does it. God brings it. Our responsibility is to respond to the call. Remember last week? My response is my responsibility. My response to God's call is my responsibility. So God does cause difficult situations to come our way. What he's asking in the midst of it is, will you make room so that you can be an object of my glory? What's going to emerge from the situation you're facing this morning? I have no idea. I don't know what you're walking through. God does, I promise you that. He knows exactly what's going on. And know this when you leave this morning, if God brought a challenge to your life, it's because he knows he can trust you with it. That's why he brought it to Joseph. That's why he brought it to Mary. He knew that he could trust them. So I challenge you to make room for the glory of God to be put on display in your life. He's trusting you with that huge responsibility. So we remind you one more time, and then I'm going to talk to those who might want to receive Christ this morning. Look at it one more time on the screen. Objects of wrath became objects of mercy for the purpose of being objects of his glory. You go back and look at Romans 9.22 yourself, and you'll see it's there every single time. For the purpose of making him known through the riches of his glory on us. If you've never received Jesus and you've always wondered, how, do, how does that work? How do I do that? Right now, in the quietness of your seat where you're at, you can tell God. You do it with a whisper or a thought in your mind. I know that I'm a sinner. I'm going to invite you into prayer in just a moment. I know that I'm a sinner. Jesus, will you take away my sin? I believe I know some of you are just busting right now. You want to do that. So I'm going to ask you, whether you're a believer or not yet a believer, would you bow your head and close your eyes? I'm just going to instruct you on what to do. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now recognizing that you speak through the power of your word, and this morning is no exception. Your word you cause to come alive. You say it's, a, it's active, it's sharp, and it pierces. Father, I believe that you've done heart surgery this morning in many ways. But I pray specifically for those right now who may be at the place where they want to express belief 
where they want forgiveness of their sins. So God, I, I pray for that one or 10 or 20 that you'd be near right now. Father, that the power of your Holy Spirit would be felt in the presence of this moment. Everybody keep their eyes closed and let me ask you to do this if you want to express faith in Christ. Just tell them this. God, I believe in Jesus. I am a sinner. And I want to be forgiven of my sins. God, take away my sin. And Jesus be the Lord of my life. The Lord God in his own word says that it's as simple as that if you just declared that, you believe that you are considered an object of his mercy. It actually says that you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. God, I've just uttered your own words back in this auditorium because it's your words that bring us to faith in Christ. So I'm praying for those right now who may have just expressed to you that they want to be forgiven of their sin. Lord God, nurture them, grow them, increase their walk with you. Let them not fall by the wayside, but rather let them press on to realize they are objects of your mercy and you can indeed put yourself on display through every one of our lives. So I pray for the rest of us, Father. I pray for this entire auditorium. I pray for every person watching online right now. God, in whatever conversations we have in the midst of our Christmas dinner, whatever we do in our work week that's remaining, that we would not shrink away from the things that you've called us to do, but rather we would hit it head on. And that requires more than our own strength. It requires the boldness and the power of the Holy Spirit. God, give us your boldness. Work through us so that we might give glory to the one who is worthy of it. The Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Before you grab your car keys, hear me on this. If you prayed to receive Jesus Christ this morning, there are free Bibles in the back of the auditorium. They're sitting on a little round table underneath the information area. Inside those Bibles is a note. And I wrote the note to you so you would know what the next steps are. What do I do with this? Grab that, read it, process it. In the meantime, have a great week, New Hope.